young urban Zen in the Buddha Hall, I could not be more excited. Let's see. Yeah. How many here are how many are here for the first time? Oh yes. Oh yes. How in the world do you hear about something like this? <laughs> Seriously, how does that happen? Um, yeah, for, for all of those who are here for the first time, this is San Francisco Zen Center. This is this beautiful building designed by Julia Morgan. Um, and Zen Center's been here for 50 years? 50 years. I'm a resident and a priest here. There's some other residents in the room, which is really cool. And uh, it's been my my uh, responsibility and maybe the highlight of my year. Uh, to, I took over leadership of Young Urban Zen about a year ago. What a joy, what a joy. So uh, we are, we're here primarily for maybe two things. Uh, one is how do we practice? How do we do this Zen practice? And the other is community. I think it's one of the most important things we do in Young Urban Zen is community. So there are ways that we get to engage here that maybe folks who've been a part of the Zen Center circles in other ways don't really get, it, get to do, like saying our names in a circle or um, other things you'll notice as we go along. But I think what we're doing here is, is uh, really wonderful. Thanks for coming. It's my big thank you. So the theme for tonight uh, is Dongshan, Dongshan, and the inspiring possibility of freedom. Dongshan was a, a Chan master. We'll learn more about his life as we go along. Um, maybe we'll say he and one other monk were the, the founders of this school in China. So big time influence on how and what we do. So ours is a pretty simple practice. Like we just, we just sit, we just breathe, we're just aware. It's very, very simple, but it sometimes has a pretty elaborate streak. Um, we've got some ornaments behind me. Um, I'm often wearing a robe with some really big fancy sleeves. Um, simple practice, elaborate streak. And there is a, just a little story I want to tell you. There's a, a ceremony happened in 1969 at Tassajara. So Suzuki Roshi, founder of this temple, like a just under five foot Japanese man who made such a splash uh, creating these temples. So in a very formal ceremony in, in, at Tassajara, he's sitting in this big fancy chair. And the idea is with all this, with all this context, all this ceremony to say, hey, this is an important moment Every student who's there comes up and has a one-to-one -one interaction publicly, like putting their, putting their most important question to the teacher. That, pretty intense, right? In front of, in front of everyone. It really, draws, it really draws forward some energy and some, uh, some insight, in part because you get, to, you get to hear all the responses. It's like, it's really bonding, actually, to hear everyone's nerves in their voice and their sort of heartfelt question, and then the unexpected ways that Suzuki Roshi met them. So the story is, there's a student that comes up, 
has this pretty formal exchange during which the student says something like, when we walk, there's no approaching. The crickets are chirping and the flies fly. You tell us to extend ourselves. In what direction can I extend my practice? In what direction can I extend my practice? And the background there is that one of, one of Suzuki Roshi's common teachings is that we, we do zazen, we do meditation, fundamental, most important thing in uh, establishing Zen practice. And then he has this really great way of saying, we don't divide the cushion from our daily life. And he doesn't even say, take your practice off the cushion. Instead, he says, extend your practice from your cushion out into your activity. So that's the backstory. And this, the student is asking the obvious question, in which way can I extend? What direction is there for me to extend? And Suzuki Roshi says the unexpected thing. He goes, direction? There's no direction. To be kind to everything one by one is the direction of the practice. To be kind to everything one by one. Almost counterintuitive when our practice is just simple awareness, right? But to keep that in the back of the mind as we move along. I think if you only remember one thing about, if you come to a Dharma talk and you get one thing about this school of practice, just sit, practice kindness, and the heart grows freer. Just sit, practice kindness, and the heart grows freer. So, Sounds like a pretty simple practice. Also right in the middle of it, and here we get into the sort of meat of this theme, we also have these like mind-warping teachings of wisdom, like mind-bending. Um, Brian, if any of you were here for uh, some of Brian's talks over the last, last couple of weeks, he's talked about this a bit. One of the quotes that I wanted to make sure I captured correctly was his, teaching, his teacher saying to him, or to a group, if we could fully realize, if I could show you who you really are right now, you would instantly die of shock. (laughs) 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 That there's such profundity, actually, such profundity available in wisdom, and the hint that maybe actually the way that I'm seeing the world isn't the entire picture. And how deep does that go? How deep does that go? So some of the ways that this like, utter deep wisdom is paraphrased, things like the comprehensive perfection of all being, the comprehensive perfection of all experience, that even our imperfections, and don't we have some, Even our imperfections are the perfect functioning of a totally complete process. And in that that way, they're they're exactly exactly as they are. They're They're perfect in the fact that they exist in just the way that they exist. It's not so intuitive how we got there to this sort of conclusion, but there's this this cornerstone this cornerstone sutra called the Heart Sutra. And I think one of the best ways to illustrate it is with a bell. So, definitely a bell, 
definitely a bell. We can think of, we can think of one of the, the central teachings of the Heart Sutra that no thing has inherent existence. And I'll explain. This, this bell does not exist without the support of countless conditions across space and time. This, uh, if we look in the space realm, say you were able to zoom in really, really close and like, try to find the edge. This is pretty easy for us to think about these days, but they didn't have this sort of technology back when this teaching was coming out. Like we can, we can sort of think about how the edge of a bell is just like flickering probabilities of maybe something there, space. <laughs> but really there's, there's no bell-ness existing. It's a continual flux of conditions. That's the space dimension. And then the time dimension is easy to see if you think about the bell. This was ore and heat came together and for a while it's going to look like this and make this sound. And then soon enough, who knows what it will be, but it won't be this anymore. It, the conditions that make bell will break apart and no longer be. In that way we say it's empty. It's empty. It's not nothing. Like it's still... You can still hear it, right? It still has a function. But it's all, it's conditions all the way down. It's pretty fabulous. And then this really starts to get shaky and powerful and transformative when we take this understanding and then we go, whoop, and we look at ourselves. That is freaky. It can be. It can be. That is a, that's a joyful and, um, a joyful, dramatic sometimes shocking process to, uh, to come to terms directly through experience with our own emptiness and immerse ourselves in those sorts of understandings and perceptions and then see what happens. Any number of things that also include kindness, extending your practice. So that's, a, that's maybe emptiness, emptiness in a nutshell. Something I want to emphasize, just to like take it one degree further, Jiri Arushman Beiler, who's uh, the head of practice at Green Gulch Farm, soon to be the abbot over there, he's paraphrasing, paraphrasing some, some ancient teacher. He said, we're so, because of our conditionality, because we're, we're like in flux, changing all the time, we are so connected to one another we can't even say that we're separate enough to be connected. Let's, let's wind, wind that one back. We can't, like, we're so in, enmeshed that we, we're not even separate enough to call ourselves separate things that are then connected. It's pretty intimate. It's pretty intimate in this whole thing. So one of the ways that I want to I suggest that we can relate to these sort of mind-bending teachings of emptiness, wisdom, uh, is first to know that they have, they have a sort of negative phrasing. Emptiness sounds pretty void, one of the old translations. Also has a positive, a positive translation, a whole other term that discusses its other aspect, and that's the term of suchness. Emptiness, suchness. Suchness, uh, thusness is another term for this. One of the names for the Buddha is the Tathagata, 
and the ta-ta-ta is thus. It's like just, just this, just this. So here we are, utter condition, perfection, being, etc. Now we're going to take a turn. What in the world does this have to do with me? What does it have to do with my shortcomings? What does it have to do with making any effort in the practice? Like, can this really account for my life? Of thinking like this. Does anyone ever have questions like this when we're studying emptiness? I, I certainly do. Um, one of the driving questions of the, the founder in Japan of this school, Dogen, was if we're, all, if we're all free, if we're all liberated from the beginning, if our nature is inherently free, why bother? Why practice at all? And that question, I will colloquially say it drove him bonkers, but he worked on this as his, like the central mystery of his life for years. He had studied the Dharma so deeply and had this unshakable faith. Yes, conditionality. We can totally see it. There's no empty bell. I am this whole being. Why bother? And that drove him. So let's zoom in on our meditation practice a little bit. Taking, a, taking all that into account. Another Suzuki Roshi story. Now, one of the old, uh, former abbots here, Zenke Blanche, Blanche Hartman. If anyone has ever seen a picture of Blanche, she's got like this short, buzzed white hair. Uh, there's a great photo of her at the Pride Parade carrying a parasol, a rainbow parasol. Anyway, she had a, she had a real pithy way. And... Um, Suzuki Roshi was her teacher. She said that Suzuki Roshi was really encouraging to her whenever she felt discouraged, whenever she was having a hard time in meditation or like, oh, I don't get this. Suzuki Roshi would be really encouraging. And then there was this retreat where we sit a whole bunch of zazen and things start changing and understandings start becoming clear. Turns out, as I heard the story, she had a meditation period where she was finally able to follow her breathing. Finally able to follow her breathing and was able to follow it the whole time. And this was like, wow, look at that. That's amazing. Um, so she goes to Suzuki Roshi in their formal one-on-one teacher-student meeting. And she says, Suzuki Roshi, wow, I think I can sit zazen. I think I know how to sit zazen now. And there was like this flash And he was like, don't ever think that you can sit zazen. That is a big mistake. Shocking, right? He says, you don't sit zazen. Zazen sits zazen. My first teacher said that to me in the the first year that I was sitting. I had no idea what he was talking about for a long time. A really long time. But there's a way that being immersed in zazen, especially in seshin, where our usual, our usual perceptions of self and clingings and cravings, they start to fall off. And there's some kind of recognition, much like the way that Brian was talking about last, last week. There's a recognition 
that there's this whole process happening that's operating perfectly fine without my input. Zazen is sitting Zazen. It's a pretty radical practice in itself, Zazen, just to clearly know. And a defining characteristic is that we don't add action. We don't add our craving, which is an action. We don't add our clinging. We don't add, get that away from me, which is an action. Once we've settled into shikantaza proper, letting go of any particular thing that we have to pay attention to, pretty radical. And there's this way that it unwinds our, our habits. Because the habitual tendency, as, a, as you may have noticed, I certainly notice it in myself. Sitting zazen, did anyone hear that big truck go by? The thought was like, wow, that is really loud. I wonder if that's necessary. And then with the exhale, I was back with the body. There's a, there's a way in that moment, sound, my tendency came up. I saw my tendency. And then as soon as I saw it, released it so as not to feed it. It's like retraining the tendencies of the mind. So just know and let go. Just know and let go. I think I'm going to tell one more story. It's a little longer. It's about a charming, a charming young boy named uh, Ryokai. Ryokai was tutored in Dharma. He was tutored in Buddhism. And uh, his tutor was reading aloud the Heart Sutra. The Heart Sutra. Something that we chant every day. The, uh, it's sometimes called our school song because uh, we, we study this text so frequently. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, med, it's a, a sutra depicting a certain kind of meditation in my interpretation. And there's this really famous passage, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sight, no sound, no smell, so on. So Ryokai's tutor is reciting this sutra. Ryokai goes, wait. He feels his face, and he says to his tutor, I have, I have eyes, I have a nose, and I have ears. This little boy. Why, why, does the, why does this sutra of perfect wisdom say that I don't have these things? And the teacher, realizing this young one's capacity, was like, oh, out of my league. <laughs> Little one. So he sends this, he sends this young boy to a, another teacher uh, who, who can help, help him develop. But this question sort of drives Ryokai. He ordains as a Buddhist monk, Spends like 21 years, uh, finds his way to Mount Dongshan, which then becomes his name. So Dongshan, just this, thusness. Um, Dongshan's story is an interesting one because he's driven by this question in much the same way Dogen was. It's like, what's the, what's the difference between the teaching of emptiness and the teaching of like me having a body and being a human? He gets really fascinated with this particular question that drives him all over, all over the country, up and down mountains, since teachers live on mountains, 
And when he finally resolves it, he's face to face with his teacher. He has an insight, like the first awakening. And the first thing he says to his teacher is not, hey, cool, check this out. He says, I've still got some underlying tendencies in here. I still have, I still have, some, things that I'm, I still have some things that I'm working on. And I love this about Dongshan's story because it's not like, it's not like he, he, saw, he saw one truth, it was done, and then all of my problems are solved. It was like his teacher recognized his insight and then, and then, and then accepted Dongshan's report of, hey, I've still got some things that I need to work on in here. Um, So they keep training together. He and his teacher train together for something like 15, 20 years. And then it's finally time for Dongshan to leave the monastery. He's like, he's matured to the point where it's time to go. His teacher authorizes him as independent. And then they have this conversation that I want to share with you. When Dongshan was taking leave, he respectfully inquired, after a hundred years, if someone were to ask me to describe the truth that you taught, like all the wisdom, and then all of the immersion and lived experience, if someone asked me to describe the truth that you taught, how should I answer them? And his teacher, Yunyan, said, just this is it. Just this is it. Dongshan sank into deep thought and actually had strong doubts that he did not understand after all that training. It's so easy to say, just this is it, you know? So his uh, teacher encourages him. He says, in order to understand, you're going to have to investigate this matter thoroughly. You're in charge of this now. And then they part. And as Dongshan is like working this over, he's left the monastery, he's crossing a river, and he looks down and he catches a glimpse of his reflection in the water. He has a moment of profound insight. And then he, he composes this poem. He says, truly, I should not seek the truth from others. Because then it's far from me. Now I'm going alone. Everywhere I go, I meet it. It is me now. I am not it. When we understand this, we are instantaneously with the truth. There's a lot we could unpack there. Given the time that we have, I just want to highlight one thing. Which is... That this breakthrough came after a lifetime of practice. 
a lifetime of practice, of such the simple practice that we are already up to, you know? In the same way that Thich Nhat Hanh teaches the, has this teaching of peace is every step. It's just like we can, we can savor this entire path. We can have these moments of awakening, like, this, like the, um, this teaching of emptiness can, can like come into us and be part of our life, extend out with kindness, and then have some deeper insight, and then live that out in your life. What's so beautiful about this practice, like Dogen's Circle of the Way, is that it's iterative. We keep living our best understanding. And then we keep learning again. It's sort of a humbling process, you know? Um, sometimes, the, sometimes the new insights come with this feeling of like, oh, how could I? Like, what was I doing? Or they like come with a little pang, like, oh, I was, I was living out this life, and actually I ended up hurting some people. But I take a lot of encouragement. I take a lot of, a lot of inspiration from stories like Dongshan or Dogen, where they live this whole lifetime just steeping themselves as best they can in the practice. And then the heart opens itself up. I didn't plan for this, but it, it does seem we've ended up in the place where we started, which was just sit, practice kindness, and the heart grows more free. I think there's really something to that. So if there's something you want to take, take away about the teachings of wisdom, the teachings of prajna, in the way that I was just saying, live, to live one's to live one's deepest understanding that one has, knowing that it's provisional. A new one is going to come along. And then do it again. And we'll get into messes together. It'll be great fun. <laughs>